remain standing out of reverence for God's Word, and you can grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it would be useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word, so we would invite you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in a chair in front of you and turn to page 861 as our studies through Luke's Gospel continues this morning. It was uh, just last Sunday that one of the members came up and asked inquisitively, Jordan, how long until we finish Luke's Gospel? And I said, well, just hold on till Easter of 2019. And so whether or not that's fast or slow to you, I do not know. But today we come to the end of chapter 5, which means we're about 20% of our way through our journey in this wonderful story of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we want to look at this morning verses 27 through 38 together. I'm sorry, verse 27 through 39 as we look at Luke chapter 5. So let me go ahead and now read our text uh, together and then I do want to pray one more time for God to bless our study of his word, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God is speaking to us through his word. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new for he says, the old is good. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do praise you that you are a God who is living. You are a God who is reigning. And that you rule over us even now by giving unto us your word that is living and active. Uh, we pray that you would send it forth in our midst to do us good, to bring us to your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that your word does not go out and come back void, but it always achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray this morning that the purposes for which you'd send it in our midst would be the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints. So help us to hear with diligence and eagerness for me to preach with faithfulness boldly and clearly as I ought. 
Help me to preach as a dying man unto dying people and for us to hear as though this sermon might be our last. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The presence of an authority changes things. When a person of power arrives in a room, things tend to adjust. And think about how that plays itself out all across ordinary life. When a parent comes into a room with a crying child, the presence of that parent tends to bring calm and comfort. When the classroom is chaotic and somewhat crazy and the teacher finally arrives, things begin to become more peaceful. Or the presence of that authoritative, motivating coach showing up to his team in the locker room before the the big championship. His presence is a motivating factor and excites encouragement for the game to come. Or even you may have seen before, the phenomenon so common in our culture of the presence of a celebrity causes fans to shriek in excitement and amazement. Or the presence of the president coming into the Senate room causes those men and women to rise at his entrance. Or the presence of a king coming into a room means his subjects bow down in humility. But what happens when the king of kings arrives? What happens when the Lord of lords shows up? So students, you might think of this in your own minds. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was to show up tomorrow morning at the breakfast table over your bowl of cereal, what kind of difference would his presence make? And what we've seen in recent weeks, if you've been with us in Luke's gospel, is that the presence of Jesus Christ indeed changes things. We've seen him, he comes, and he comes with healing. He comes with the power to exercise demons. He comes with the power that astonishes people in his preaching and teaching. His mere presence caused sinners to follow him and to repent of their sin, and those are things we're going to see worked out once again in our text this morning, but maybe you noticed in the scripture reading of just a few seconds ago how even our text tells us something that happens because he's absent. When he's gone from his disciples, how might that affect and change their lives? So we want to consider these things together, and the main theme of our text is the great and glorious truth that the joy of Christ's kingdom belongs to repentant sinners. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The joy of his kingdom belongs to repentant sinners. This gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus has come proclaiming and preaching and teaching with all authority, it is a gospel that is a summons to repentance, most basically. But we need to see, so illustrated in wonder before us this morning, how it also beckons us to unimaginable joy. And we'll see that in our two scenes that we have before us this morning that we'll see are actually kind of linked together quite clearly, in fact. So, the two scenes before us, I want to walk through with two simple headings. Number one, feast with Jesus, and number two, fast for Jesus. You may have noticed that there is this kind of theme of food running through our text. And the first scene is about feasting with Jesus, and the second scene is about fasting for Jesus. So the first call in our text is to feast with Jesus. And notice once again how verse 27 begins. The simple phrase, after this. 
So kids, do you remember what happened last week if you were with us when we studied the earlier part of Luke chapter 5? After this, what happened last week? Jesus once again showed and declared that he has all authority over sin. And that declaration where he said, I am the son of man who has the authority to forgive sin upset the religious leaders to such a degree that Jesus decides to heal the paralyzed man that was placed before him in a display of his authority over sin. So this is not long after Jesus just healed a paralyzed man, declared that he is indeed the long-expected Messiah, but underneath that is the quite stunning claim that he is in fact God. Because only God could forgive sin. Only God can claim that kind of authority. And so you see as verse 27 continues, after that declaration of authority, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. I'm sure you know we're in the midst of yet another annual season of reporting taxes to the IRS. When you think of tax collectors, what tends to come in your mind and if it's a negative thing that comes into your mind, I can assure you it's not nearly as negative as the view that early first century Jews would have had of tax collectors in their society. Because to become a tax collector, what you had to do was make a bid to the Roman Empire to open up a tax booth. And that bid was the amount of money you guaranteed you could collect at your tax booth. So understandably, the higher your bid was, the more likely it was that the Roman regime would give you a commission to collect taxes. So tax collectors ordinarily were synonymous with robbers, traitors, and extortionists because they got rich off the hard-earned money of their fellow Jewish citizens. And in their tax-collecting work, they're supporting the work and the rule of the hated Roman regime. So to be a tax collector at this time was to be a disgrace to your family, was to be disqualified from serving on a jury because you were not trustworthy in any way. But even further, it meant being disbarred from synagogue worship. You weren't welcomed into the worship of the holy God because you were so ceremonially unclean. And if you want to know even how, how strong this was, do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, this great passage on church discipline? When he talks about excommunicating, removing someone from the fellowship, what does he say? Treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. So hated were tax collectors at this time, excluded from ordinary worship and even society at that moment. But Jesus, if you haven't already guessed it before, he's breaking with custom and tradition nearly at every turn. So he continues, notice in verse 27, by saying to Levi, follow me. And Levi left everything, rose, and followed Jesus. So if you weren't with us a few weeks ago as we look at the beginning of chapter 5, what you want to see again here is a, is a perfect miniature portrait of genuine Christian discipleship. Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It means first hearing his call of grace. Follow me. Not based on anything clearly in the life of Levi, who would later become known as Matthew, one of the twelve disciples. Anything he has done, he's only done things to bring derision and hate and all kinds of acrimony in the society. And yet Jesus says, follow me. It's a call of grace. And it requires a response of repentance. Leaving everything, forsaking your sin, 
to follow Jesus. And we talked about a few weeks ago how the call to discipleship is always one that's going to be costly. And we see that within the men and women who come to Jesus. There's always going to be a financial, social, relational, reputational cost to following Jesus. But see again and find the encouragement that it is centrally a call to follow Jesus. Up Levi goes, leaving everything behind, which would have been great wealth, and he is following Jesus. And true Christian disciples never want to go to heaven alone. They want to tell people about Jesus, and so we find Levi not only suddenly converted, but he's immediately witnessing. Do you see what happens next in verse 29? Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So it's a picture of great joy, of great merriment. It's a picture of celebration of salvation. It's even, in some ways, a beautiful painting of what we're going to see later on, Lord willing, in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says there is more joy in heaven at the repentance of one sinner than 99 who need not repent. And here is that joy of salvation displayed before our very hearing this morning. So think about the scene with me, if you will. This would have been a large house in that moment in time, expansive, many rooms in which you could invite many guests. Levi would have had much funding that he could throw a lavish meal, blessing all the people who had come into his home. Everyone is drinking, everyone is eating, there is great excitement, and around the house, in all likelihood, the religious leaders are peering in, maybe through open doors or open windows, looking in with great spite looking in with great concern because here is this rabbi, here is this teacher that has so attracted attention that the entire countryside and the entire area is all ablaze with wonder at his power, yet here he is with tax collectors and other people that the religious leaders have said are sinners. How could he do such a thing? But you'll see, last week if you remember, Jesus basically read their minds They had this objection in their minds about what he had claimed for himself related to forgiveness. They're still not courageous enough just yet to go to Jesus. But they'll go to his disciples now with their objection. Do you see that? In verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I wonder if any of you know the name John Patton. He was a great missionary in the 19th century. In the middle of the 1800s, his denomination, which was the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian Church, had put a call before that entire church that they desired to send a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands out in the Pacific Ocean. And for a few years, this call went unheeded until John Patton decided, well, I will go. Very much in the sense of Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. And as he let his desire made known to the church that he would go take the gospel of Christ to the people and the pagans and the heathens in the New Hebrides Islands, he was immediately dissuaded from doing it. Friends and family members, even beloved church members are saying, what are you going to do that for? Even one old man, Mr. Dixon, in his church lifted up his voice at a very important church meeting that was going to decide if he was going to go or not. And he said, Mr. Patton, the cannibals... You're going to be eaten by the cannibals. 
And he responds, it doesn't matter if my body is eaten by cannibals or worms as long as it is spent to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's as though the Pharisees come to the disciples of Jesus and say, sinners, but you're eating with sinners. You're going to be contaminated by tax collectors. So what will Jesus say? Because he's going to speak up now. Notice in verse 31 through 32, He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So kids, you always want to have this question before your mind, why did Jesus come? Knowing that question and answering that question is going to help you glorify him rightly. So according to this text, what did Jesus come to do? This may be even a thing you might talk about with your parents over lunch. According to Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, why did Jesus come? He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In some ways, this is a motto that ought to be put over the masthead of every single church. He came for sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance. We've seen, haven't we, over and over in Luke's gospel that Christ came not merely to heal, not merely to cast out demons. He came to preach the gospel of forgiveness. He came to proclaim the good news to people who needed it most. And so surely his mission is the church's mission. Do you ever feel as though you have advanced beyond and maybe even graduated from the gospel of forgiveness that calls for your repentance? Even as a church, this is the centrality of our life together. The purpose for which God has brought us together to glorify Him, to grow one another in Jesus Christ, and to go reach sinners and call them to repentance. So, students, what does it mean to repent? To turn from your sin? Hate it and forsake it and and follow Jesus Christ. Because no church is supposed to be a spiritual country club full of people who are prim and proper. It's supposed to be a house of refuge calling anyone and everyone to come and rest in Jesus Christ. It's an outpost, even an offensive outpost of Christ's kingdom in a dark, world oppressed by cosmic powers and forces of evil in the heavenly places. It moves and advances with the gospel. It is a city set on a hill that guides wandering sinners home to the Savior. Christ calls out to sinners and the Pharisees despise him for it. So what kind of environment we should consider this Are we working towards cultivating as a church body? One that preaches this inclusive message of the gospel is for all. The gospel is for anyone. Or are we cultivating a culture that's just exclusive preferences? People like me. People that I want to be around. Very much embodying the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees. The joy of Christ's kingdom belongs to those who have responded with hearts of repentance 
And responding in repentance is an invitation to feast with the King for all eternity. So maybe you're in here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't yet come to Him in faith. What you want to be encouraged in, I hope, from this good news of our Savior is that He comes for people just like you. Maybe you feel despised or marginalized. Maybe you feel dejected and outcast in society, in the world. The Savior came for people like you. And He calls you to repentance, to turn from your sin and trust in His work. And by doing that, not only will He forgive you of your sin, He welcomes you into blessed, eternal life, everlasting. And it's an eternal life that's full of feasting with the King, seeing Him once and for all in His beauty. So it's a call in our text to feast with Jesus. And secondly, it's a call to fast for Jesus. Our boys, as I'm sure you can imagine, with enough of them being young and little at home, often play games throughout the day that they have invented. And yesterday, there was a game they invented when they found a a stray balloon in one of the bedrooms, and they began to storm down one of the hallways playing some sort of pretend balloon soccer. And it didn't take very long before I was seated in the family room, and Emily was I was with Boston, I think, in the kitchen, that we began to hear these rules being made up about this balloon soccer game in the hallway. All kinds of wild rules about what it meant to actually score a goal and how you were going to win. And of course, every single rule seemed to be an advantage to the one that made the rule. And before you know it, it was like the whole joy of the game had just disappeared under the weight of all of these little boy rules that had come into the hallway. And if you know something of that experience, you have something of an idea of the kind of oppression that came from these religious leaders in the Jewish culture at the time, made the Pharisees. They were a small group of men, but they were very influential, who were experts at making up rules, man-made tradition of what it meant to actually be holy, of what it meant to actually be righteous before God. They were experts at turning blessings into burdens. And one of those related to fasting. Because the Old Testament law tells us there was only one time that God required his people to fast. And it was on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, they were all corporately to fast. But by the time Jesus shows up, the Pharisees were teaching a religious system of piety that required fasting every Monday and every Thursday. And for them, fasting was not merely just something to be done to abstain from food. It was a sign of their holiness. And we even see in the text that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting for repentance. So the Pharisees hear Jesus' declaration, I came to call sinners to repentance. And they think, well, what is one of the chief spiritual practices that signifies and manifests genuine repentance? They think, well, of course, fasting. So see what they ask Jesus now in verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. You're all about repentance and righteousness, Jesus. Well, what about fasting? Well, look what Jesus says, verse 34. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Weddings at this time in that culture were week-long affairs. And wedding guests had one responsibility during that week. Eat as much as you can. And so Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. Why would they fast? 
And even you need to see something subtle about Jesus' identity and what he's claiming for himself in this moment because what you'll find particularly in the prophets is, is God illustrating his relationship with his covenant people as that of a bridegroom to a bride. And here comes Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom. Why would they fast when I am here? But do you see that he does expect there will come a time when his people will fast? Notice verse 35. The days will come and the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. I do think it's probably one of the more common questions I've gotten over the course of my pastoral ministry from earnest Christians seeking to grow in their relationship with God and devotion to Him. It's a question of what about fasting? Oh, it's so clearly seen in the early church in the book of Acts. We know from church history it was very common, really up until the mid-20th century, across many different Christian denominations. Well, what about fasting? Well, one thing we can say is that the New Testament never commands it. I think it never commands it because it clearly expects it. It's even Jesus' language in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you fast. And then he's going to describe what humble, authentic fasting looks like. And even our passage says there's a time when the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is going to be taken away. He's going to ascend into heaven. And then, then his disciples will fast. And what will they fast for, though? This kind of fasting, I believe, that Jesus has in mind here isn't a kind of fasting that depicts repentance or holiness as much as it depicts longing for the bridegroom to return. It's an expression of expectancy and desire for the king to come back. So if you look across the American evangelical landscape today and discover something of an almost universal absence of fasting, that can mean one of two things. One, everyone's fasting and they're obeying Jesus' command not to tell people about it. They're fasting in secret, practicing righteousness before God's eyes alone. Or it might be, and I dare say more likely, that our lack of fasting reveals our lack of longing for the king. Can our small appetite for his return manifest itself in a big appetite for the world? So consumed with its pleasures and its power that we have little time to express our longing for the Lord Jesus Christ in fasting. There is a time when we are to fast for Jesus, and that time is now. In order to further prove the point of what's going on with Christ ushering in the new kingdom, just scan your eyes through verses 36 and 38. Jesus employs a parable. It's really two different pictures to illustrate what's going on with this kingdom that he is ushering in. And these two pictures, one says you don't put a new patch of clothing on an old pair of clothes, and nor do you put new wine into old wineskins. The new patch will tear away from the old, or the new wine is going to burst the old wineskins. And both illustrations are meant to prove the same point. That the coming of Jesus Christ has ushered in the new covenant, and the forms and practices and religious observances of the old covenant no longer fit this new coming kingdom. To fit me, he is saying, around this box of the old covenant means it's going to explode. It doesn't even do that himself. When he comes and fulfills the sacrificial system and the law, he comes to not abolish it, but fulfill it. It no longer has its binding authority on God's people because the king has finally arrived. The presence of this authority changes many things. Many things. He comes to call sinners to repentance and he comes to bring them the joy of the kingdom. 
the bridegroom has arrived. And of course, we stand on the other end of redemptive history awaiting for his return. And how eager are we for him to come back? The joy of Christ's kingdom belongs to those who repent of their sin. It's about 50 years ago that a man some of you may know, John Stott, published a book called Christ the Controversialist. You know, someone was to ask you, what's one word to sum up Jesus' ministry? I'm sure we probably use words like redemption, salvation, power, even uniquely so far in Luke's gospel, authority. But how many of you would think of the word controversy? And John Stott basically walks through the controversies of Jesus in the Gospels and say it's therein, within those conflicts that lie the heart of evangelical Christianity. You know, I told you last week that what we saw in the scene when Jesus heals the paralytic it was the first time that the seeds were sown of a conflict that's going to keep rearing its head and it's going to ultimately lead to Jesus' execution there at Calvary. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders only is going to continue. Really, even from here on out, it's never far away from almost any scene we're going to look into in Luke's gospel. What we want to ask the question is, what kind of controversy are we looking at? Maybe more pointedly for us, how does he mean to confront us today? If he's confronting false notions of true Christian practice, understanding of the gospel there at this time in Luke chapter 5, how might he want to confront us in these two scenes today? So I want to leave you with two simple points to meditate on as we begin to close. How I do believe that Christ means to confront us. Number one, Christ's grace confronts the self-righteous. Christ's grace confronts our self-righteousness. So what does it mean to be self-righteous, kids? What does it mean to have self-righteousness? It simply means that you believe that your words, your works, and your wisdom are sufficient to earn God's acceptance. And it's on those words, works, and wisdom that you rely for salvation. And nothing is more confrontational to that worldview and that understanding than the undeserved, unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. He comes to give it freely, unconditionally, not based on anything he has seen or heard within you, and it tends to upset self-righteous people. And we're going to see it throughout Luke's gospel. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they embody this kind of self-righteousness that we must admit afflicts all of us to some degree, surely. And what it results within them is constant criticism of the king. Self-righteousness fuels itself on pride and manifests itself in constant criticism. So maybe you might sit in here this morning and need to be confronted with the unmerited free grace of Jesus Christ. It awakens you away from pride and criticism and stirs you into humility and gladness in service of this king as a citizen of his kingdom. So Christ's grace confronts our self-righteousness. And secondly, Christ's joy confronts empty religion. And they're linked because what he's saying here is he's pointing out the Pharisees' practices of religion that are empty before God. It's even why we read earlier in our service from Matthew's account of this scene. He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That yes, you have all of these forms. You have all of these practices. You have all of these external adornments to your religion, but all of them mean nothing 
in light of my glorious gospel kingdom. So his joy, do you see it, with the wineskins, the new covenant kingdom joy of Jesus Christ is bursting the old. Forms, many of you may know this, tend to obscure the central point. He comes to remove those things that are mere external realities that we might actually see and enjoy Jesus Christ and exalt him. And it's that joy that comes through repentance. And let us not think, even as we consider there's joy in repentance, that repentance at the call of Christ is easy. It's a call to forsake everything and follow him. Maybe some of you even sitting here this morning, you know exactly how hard it is to follow Christ because he wants everything and claims everything and calls you to forsake those former loves. It's a hard work, repentance. Be encouraged, it's, it's the most joyful work you could ever know. Some of you have read, or maybe even seen, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the main characters in that book is a little boy named Eustace Scrub. He starts out the book quite a tyrannical figure. And eventually, because of his greed and self-righteousness, he's turned into a dragon. And do you remember the scene? He's desperate to get the scales of his dragon skin off. And he finds there's only one way for those scales to fall. The claws of the lion king Aslan must rip into it. And so once the scales finally fall, he goes to his cousins, the Pevensey children, and this is what he said about his experience. Such a picture, is it not, of the joy and pain of, of repentance. And when Aslan began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. But to know Jesus Christ is to know the pleasure of the King, to be welcomed into the joy of his kingdom. So the call unto you is to repent of your sin. The call unto us is to preach the gospel of forgiveness that comes through repentance and thereby glorify and exalt Jesus Christ forever. It's a call to feast with the King and even fast for his return. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God of abounding grace, mercy, and love unto us. Our Father, we recognize that we so often fall short of your glory that we are prone to empty religion and self-righteousness. So give us new hearts this morning. Stir within us fresh faith. May the Spirit move to bring us to repentance that we might again receive your joy and know the peace that your Son alone can offer. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.